Hockey Night in Canada. Four words sewn into the fabric of Canada's national identity. From 1952 to 2014, the CBC held the rights to the crown jewel of sports, of sports broadcasting in this country. If you were a hockey fan, and even if you weren't, you knew where to tune in on Saturday night to watch the game. Coach's Corner, Hot Stove, depending on your era, and After Hours if you made it past the late game. While CBC had no reason to worry about competition for decades, within the past 20 years or so, the Barbarians had been arriving toward the gates. Competitors in the form of Bell Media's TSN and Rogers Sportsnet had been chipping away at CBC's dominance. And as the final seasons of their deal with the NHL began to expire, many people, especially those in the media world, believed there was hell, a hell of a drama about to unfold. With hockey rights up for grabs beginning with the 2014-15 season, who would be the victor? How, or if at all, would the pie, let's say puck in this case, be divided? David Schultz covered this saga as it developed as a writer for the Globe and Mail, where he still is. He began covering the Leafs and the NHL in 1990 for the publication, and he has been with them since 1984. He is the author of three books, including this, the much-anticipated Hockey Fight in Canada. Spoiler alert, the story of how CBC lost Hockey Night in Canada and all the ways Rogers' big win went wrong. This is Sports Lit, and I'm Neil Acharya, and I'm pleased to have my co-host Nate Sager here to discuss the book with me today before Dave joins us. Nate, you, uh, or anyone that takes an interest in sports in this country, and we're aware of the deal coming up and the rights coming up, um, how, if at all, did you find Dave's book uh, shed light on the inner workings of, of what went on before that deal transpired? Right, Neil. It's it's a you know a very fast paced read at about I guess two hundred eleven pages, and it really takes you back to what a crossing of the Rubicon it was when Rogers wrested away the NHL rights from CBC. Like one knew is I can think probably starting from about the mid early aughts, mid aughts after CBC had a, a I think a major you know uh, labor stoppage that the the time immemorial model of hockey night in Canada that which hadn't changed much since the nineteen fifties. That it was looking creaky, it was dated, it was it was on borrowed time. Everyone knew it, but they couldn't quite picture how it was all going to go down, like how it was all going to shake out until it actually happened. Uh, I guess it would be five years, five years come November 20, 2018 that Rogers and the NHL made this gatekeeper deal, five point two billion across twelve seasons. This this really a hard figure to really conceive of. And that CBC was going to just kind of be the the sort of vessel for for Rogers' broadcast. So what Dave Schultz has done is really taken us back to how that all went down and how, what the reaction was like. Because it's almost easy to forget now, like how much just like antipathy there was toward Rogers. I mean, the surveys show that most people didn't really care one way or the other who was carrying the games, but there was like people who were really upset about you know just anything that was changed it was like they did anything and like you'd get this segment of the viewership that would just basically turn into isla fisher and wedding crashers holding her breath and stomping her feet until you know christopher Walken says okay you honey you can have you can get you get whatever you wanted and which is ultimately what happened with the broadcast and maybe unfortunately for the career arc of, of george strombolopoulos which we'll we'll ask dave about like it's an interesting page it almost kind of it's like a thriller novel if you were really interested in i guess the uh you know the office politics of, of sports broadcasting and how deals are made. I mean, and sometimes that stuff is a, a lot more interesting than what happens on the ice. We're really grateful that, you know, and, you know, Dave Schultz is uh, here with us for, for an open mic night of sorts. Well played, Nate. Of course, uh, Dave uh, moonlights along with uh, some others in the media industry as a stand-up comedian. Uh, maybe he'll tell us a few jokes. And without further ado, we're going to bring on the man himself, Dave Schultz. And we're back on Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya, of course, along with Nate Sager, and we're very pleased to be joined by Mr. David Schultz of the Globe and Mail, uh, author of Hockey Fight in Canada, which came out on September 29th, according to the uh, press release. Dave, you can correct me if that is wrong, uh, but I'm going to first get into my, my first question, um, which is, um, how's the reception been so far? 
Well, all I've got all I've got to judge it on so far is mostly social media, <laughs> which can be a pretty negative force. Uh, but I must say it's pretty positive. Um, people on social media who have read the book have said they've enjoyed it. So I'm encouraged by that. Uh, the only other indicator I've had is, of course, because I click on it every five minutes, is uh, Amazon, and I'm number one in, in hockey books. Although I got to admit, today was such a busy day, I haven't gone on it. That's the first day in about five days I haven't compulsively looked at Amazon. So the yeah, the early the early returns are encouraging. Yes, it was. It was released officially on the 29th. There might have been one or two places, I don't know, bookstars that you could have bought it in, but essentially it was the 29th. Okay, Dave, um, I want to ask you, why does this story touch a nerve with hockey fans? Obviously, there's a love for hockey in this country, and you talked about these stories moving the dial for your articles, but why do we care how and who delivers hockey to us? Well, because I think Hockey Night in Canada is such an ingrained institution in this country. Um, John Collins, who was the at the time the marketing man or marketing chief for the NHL, and he was uh, principal in the negotiations along with Gary Bettman with uh, the CBC initially, he always said that it's a very unique property. He said the closest thing to compare it to in the U.S. is Monday Night Football as far as something that brings the community together. But he said the difference there is Monday Night Football is sort of like guys' night out in the bar watching football, whereas Hockey Night in Canada is the whole family around the TV on uh, Saturday night. And that started with radio in the 30s and, and then went into television in the early 50s. So it's just an institution. And for millions and millions of Canadian homes, it's just what they do on Saturday night. It's like a part of the family. So when someone starts changing it, uh, they're interested. And yeah, I mean, I was a little surprised that those stories, when I wrote them in the Globe Mail, top the uh you know most red list but then i thought about it and said yeah you know this is uh ron mclean and don cherry they're part of the family they're in your you know living room so yeah people care about what's going to happen to them and dave i've actually sort of intuited my next question because i think one plot line you go to a lot is sort of the the, the tension between ron mclean and, and gary bettman uh and now I've always sort of hewn into the line from Dan Jenkins about people who work for the rights holder. You know, broadcasters ain't journalists; they're establishment. But why was Ron McLean different from that? And and why did that? How did that? How was that able to exist for so long? How was Hockey Canada, Canada able to buck that trend? And how did that tension sort of come to the fore with the New Deal? Well, a lot of it was the fact that they worked for the public broadcaster. Uh, they weren't working for a private uh, broadcaster. If they had been, I think the relationship would have been more similar to the NFL has with its broadcasters, where there's rarely a discouraging word on the broadcasts themselves. And the other was Ron himself. I mean, his ex he explained it to me. He felt very strongly that there needed to be, a, as he saw it, a balance on the show. He felt there wasn't enough uh, advocacy for the player's point of view in a lot of the discussions. So he kind of thought, well, I'll be the guy to do that. Because in those latter, later years of the deal, the CBC deal, uh, there were a lot of labor issues coming up. There were two lockouts in about the last eight years, uh, six years rather, I guess, of the deal. And so, uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion, mainly between periods, about management issues. And Ron felt that uh, the players needed a voice. And this all broke down basically into a whole series of contentious interviews between Ron and Gary Bettman. And it got to the point where Gary Bettman just refused to come on the show anymore. Just uh, touching, I guess, on Ron and his relationship with the CBC, you have a, a relationship with the CBC in a sense. And, and why I say that is at the beginning or at the, in the preface or the preface, uh, at the end, you mention uh, you thank your parents, Roy and Vivian, for making you aware of the importance of CBC at an early age and always having the radio tuned to the national broadcaster. Now, with, with that, I know you want to say something. With that said, I wish we had three mics. With that said, 
How personal was this story for you? And do you think, um, you know, Canadians that may not be in the media industry may have been perhaps rooting for CBC as the mothership? I mean, just, I guess I'm making this more complicated than it needs to be. I I, kind of want to know about that last line. Well, you notice I said radio and not television. (laughs) And that's because uh, my parents made me, uh, I guess I'll blame them, a sort of an oddball when I was a kid. We never had a television in our house until I was 15 years old and my dad just couldn't bear not to see the playoffs, (laughs) not on television every spring. So... The main uh, the, the main media form in our house was the radio, and my parents were staunch, still are uh, staunch CBC listeners. It was such that if they, for example, if they didn't like the morning. Uh, person on the CBC radio and in the uh, 90s there were some changes there after the same like Peter Zosky was for many years well and I used to say them well if you don't like whoever it was just change the station and it no no they just wouldn't this is what they were like so I grew up listening to the the CBC was the soundtrack in my house when I was a kid through my teenage years and so yeah I I, I mean I always had an acute sense of of how the CBC uh, was important in that regard now that being said uh, I was on a, an Ottawa radio station this morning, and, and I got sort of the same question, uh, but it was posed as such, like, was it the CBC that people were upset was getting left behind in this deal, or were they upset about how Hockey Night in Canada, the show, was being treated? And I tend to think, yeah, it was Hockey Night, the show, because that's what was in their living room. I don't think... They were up in arms because the CBC was losing it. They got up in arms because Rogers made so many changes to the show once they got there, you know, got a hold of it. And, and that's how that sort of thing played out. But what, uh, what kind of made you include that at the end of the preface? Did you, is there something about that in relation to the story? Well, I, I also wanted to thank my parents, and, and the uh, the preface was getting up a little long-winded. But, yeah, no, I mean, I think for a certain segment of the population, yeah, the, the CBC was pretty uh, near and dear to them. And the, at the, and the fact that, you know, they were hanging on to this property, uh, with, it, it meant something to a certain amount of people. Thanks, Dave. Sorry for those Oprah-like questions. Um, no, um we always love to get the author to read a little bit, uh, and we're going to get you to do that now if that's okay with you. And this part, I'm going to tee it up, is uh, early in the book, about 40 pages in, and it's it's in the chapter, The Gathering Storm. And it uh, I've, I've it highlighted for you and maybe our listeners that aren't familiar with kind of how this all went down, um, I'm sure there might be a few, uh, can get a gauge through these uh, paragraphs. So here, I'm going to hand you the book and the mic, the book first. And it goes into the next page. Okay. By 2013, the conventional wisdom in the broadcast industry was that the only way the CBC would survive as an NHL rights holder would be to partner with either of the two telecom giants. The public network had the field to itself as a partner since the MLSC purchase agreement between Rogers and Bell and the NHL stipulated they could not become partners in any bid for the NHL's broadcast rights. This was to head off any collusion between the two giants in order to keep the price down. However, as the CBC's exclusive negotiating period approached in the summer, it began to appear as if the public network was planning to go it alone. Quote, they thought they could keep Hockey Night pretty much on the terms they had it, said Scott Moore, who maintained close relationships with a lot of CBC people after he left for Rogers. Whether that's naive or not, dot, 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 <laughs> close quotes. So just to kind of explain, I guess if you want to kind of just give a, sorry. Yes, thank you. You, you should be producing the show. Um, yeah, I mean, can you just, um, you know, kind of expand on that, that uh, kind of what you wrote there? Well, the CBC, that, that was, yeah, a, a bit of a, a, a foreboding sort of indication of what was to come in that the CBC seemed to think, we're going to hang on to this by ourselves. Right. And 
I don't know if they took it from that agreement. Uh, by the way, that that agreement was forged when Rogers and uh, Bell went in and, and took control of MLSE, and the NHL quite <laughs> realized uh, we can't have these two guys working together on this, on, on buying our rights. So they said, okay, you can buy the team, but you have to promise the two of you won't pair up uh, as official 50-50 partners, I believe, to buy our rights and drive, because that would obviously limit the price. But the assumption then was that the CBC, in order to stay part of this, because everybody knew Rogers and Bell were going to come in with these massive checkbooks and start paying huge money, uh, finally, mainly because declining viewership was really becoming a problem, and live programming like sports was sort of resistant to that. So, you know, everybody knew there's no way the CBC had that kind of money to compete with that. So the assumption was they would logically partner up with one or the other of, of these guys, and they never did. In fact, they, they rejected several overtures from Bell, and they wouldn't even take Rogers' calls. <laughs> when I say they, I mean Jeffrey Orridge and Neil McEnany, who were the negotiators, uh, both of whom are no longer with the CBC. That's no coincidence, I'm sure. Um, and, and you know, it was just, it, you know, they, they made it a lot worse than it could have been. Yeah, and I, I guess is how, to what extent is this sort of an explainer about how the broadcast industry really works, especially when you're dealing with something that's you're kind of writing like, uh, well, I, I guess if the newspaper's the first draft of history, this is like the third draft because you're dealing with th events from like 2012 to 2016. This is still pretty recent and still pretty raw for a lot of people. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, it, it. Uh, and, it, well, you know, it, it should be raw. I mean, you know, the, this thing didn't have to turn out the way it did. If, if the CBC had just, well, common sense is the easy thing to say. If they just thought about it and said, you know, we're about to lose half. If we lose this contract, we're going to lose half of our advertising revenue. And this, you know, how do we prevent this from happening? And it, and it wasn't like this was a far-fetched idea. They'd already partnered with both Bell and Roger, Rogers on the Olympics. It seemed to me a fairly easy, uh, you know, path to take. But they, uh, you know, they, they just insisted we're going to go it alone and they seem to think well we have a history with you with the nhl we've been with you for 60 years and that's going to count for something so you know history <laughs> history went the way it did when they they just refused to apply uh, common sense to this thing can you uh, explain i guess to our listeners how bad of a deal they ended up getting and and can and you can update us on that too because i believe they've since uh renegotiated well, it was a terrible deal because, and and it didn't have to be that terrible because these guys compounded their first mistake, not partnering with either Bell or Rogers, and rejecting an offer from the NHL, by the way, of a scaled down hockey night for more money than they had been paying, but money they could afford and that they would still get advertising revenue with. Uh, they rejected that. So they wound up with a terrible deal from Rogers. And it was all on a bluff, too. Keith Pelly bluffed them out of their socks on this one. And uh, he said to them right off the bat, okay, here's the deal. Um, we're going to get all the advertising revenue. You're going to show uh, the games on your network um, you're going to lend us your technical people, you're going to pay those people, uh, and you're going to give us studio and office space in your building for free. Now, he fully expected the CBC guys would come back and say, no, 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 wait a minute. We have a network that has the farthest over-the-air reach in Canada. Nobody else is even close. Maybe CTV, but we're still better than them. And you don't have CTV, by the way. Bell does. You've got nothing. you got City, which is in some of the major cities, but you don't, you know, that's it. And that's something worth paying for. And that's, then he thought, well, okay, then we'll hammer out a deal. But instead, they just rolled over and said, okay. And so they all that after that the deal was just a matter of working out the details and and i think pelly was 
surprised as anyone else that these guys did this. And of course, this set off great anger among the CBC staffers because once you know it became clear that uh, not only were sports staffers losing their jobs because of the loss of this advertising revenue, other people at the network were losing their jobs. Shows were getting canceled. Uh, it was a horrible deal. They've re-upped and made a new one, which I think takes effect next season. Nobody, and I couldn't get this out of anybody later, uh, is talking much about that deal other than it's not quite as bad. I think Rogers still gets, if not all, the bulk of the advertising revenue. I do know the CBC now has rights to uh, stream the games on their apps, uh, so that must be worth something. So it's, I, I would think, a slightly better deal. But you know what? If they had just partnered up with somebody in the first place, they'd be far better off than they are now. You're a sports writer first. I'm, 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 I mean, so there's a, a lot of – this is a business book too. Um, so how was, – was that a challenge for you? Did you lean on any of the people on, that report on business? Uh, or was this just because you'd been covering it for so long – very digestible for you and, and easy to lay out. In that sense, it, it wasn't difficult because I've already covered business issues in sports, particularly hockey, for, for quite a long time, going back uh, probably 18 or 19 years or even longer, I think. Um, I often wrote about business stuff in the NHL, like the Phoenix Coyotes was a, a long story that I thought would never end, that I had to cover for a long, long period of time, and other sort of business matters like that in the league. So, yeah, I wasn't scared of uh, of this kind of story in that regard, no. And in terms of, you know, I guess the story itself, like how, how did you work out? What I really impressed me was this almost reads like a novel. It's like very fast paced. I mean, that's why I think maybe it'll have a lot of appeal to uh, people because like, man, I can, I can just lock into this. It's like almost like like when you binge a Netflix show type of thing. How did, how did you work out the way the book is paced? Because it almost feels like it's kind of like the nonfiction novel style. Well, as, as I did the reporting on this um, in, well, I did most of the reporting for the Globe and Mail, but there were gaps and more, you know, there's always more behind the st scenes stuff that, you, uh, that you, you learn as you go along. And that's sort of when the outline started to take shape, I learned some more things. Um, I mean... It's still roughly chronological, I think, the way I laid it out, um, because that's, I mean, you're essentially just recording, uh, you know, a, a little slice of history. But there were sort of side things along the way that were either un underreported or not reported at all that deserved their own chapters in there. And so it was, a, in particular, I'm talking about the whole French language uh thing, uh, the right, the French rights, which a lot of people don't realize if Keith Pelly had not been able to parcel those off to Quebecor, which owned TVR, uh, the newer uh, French sports network, he wouldn't have been able to sell his bosses on the deal. But because he subcontract, subcontract, oh my goodness, I'll get this out, subcontracted those rights. It knocked more than a billion dollars off that deal that Rogers had to pay. It took it from $5.2 billion to about $3.7. And he said, that's a number that we could sell the board of directors on. So, you know, it was sort of then a matter of where does that fit in and, and, um, and then how do you sort of split it up? And, and I th sort of thank Brian Burke in a lot, in a lot of uh, ways for um, – making that phone call to Jeffrey Orridge back in 2012, telling him the CBC was in for a rough ride uh, at the Ottawa, at the meeting at the Ottawa All-Star game. And when I heard about that, someone told me about that, I thought there's a perfect starting point for the book. Because even when I, when I talked to John Collins about that, he said, yeah, that was a, that was a warning shot and they ignored it for sure. So I, I, you know, right away had that opening one and everything after that just sort of fell into place. You do the gathering storm in the sense of how the different companies were preparing for the negotiations. And, and the, chron the chronology itself helped a lot because there was an exclusive negotiating period 
for the CBC in the summer of 2013, followed by a period where both Bell and Rogers could negotiate, followed by the announcement. And so all of that sort of just kind of naturally, I guess you'd call it organically if you're so inclined, it just sort of fell into place that way. And uh, yeah, it just worked out sort of on its own almost. Yeah, and I sort of, I guess, as a follow-up to that, when you when you write a book like that, is, is there a process where you sort of have to take all these like real-life, you know, people and sort of sort of see them somewhat as characters who all want something? Yeah, much more so than you do with the news. Like in the newspapers, you're just writing a story, you're quoting the guy, and so space is always an issue in newspapers. Um, you can't really go into much detail about the guy whereas where you're writing a book you're telling a story you've got more room and you've got to give the reader a little something more to keep him interested and and uh, and reading so yeah you're able to flesh these characters out plus not too many people you know the average person doesn't really know a lot of these characters you know Keith Pelley and George Cope and Scott Moore and all these guys could walk down the street and and really not be recognized by a lot of people and so but they were all part of this really dramatic events and stuff that people are interesting interested in so yeah I did sort of work hard to to give some color to them and and talk a little bit about what they were like and 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 what the moods were in the various meetings you know I'm glad you touched on Keith that's my trigger word by the way I always say touched on I'm going to try and find a new way to um uh Keith Pelley is the person that fascinated me the most uh, coming into this book, knowing the backstory. I've always wondered how, uh, I mean, Canada has a conservative business culture compared to the U.S. How does Keith Pelley sell uh, a behemoth, uh, an institution in Canadian business like Rogers on this wild deal? I mean, uh, how does what, tell us about Keith Pelley and tell us how he is able to do this. Well, Keith, by himself, he's a very excitable guy, and and it's a sort of infectious kind of enthusiasm that he has when he starts talking. He can get people, even staid business people, excited about this because he's got a, a very convincing way about him. And uh, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Nadir Muhammad was uh, the sort of... He was the first CEO after Ted Rogers, and he, you know, in fact, if Ted Rogers had still been around, he'd have been far, you know, into this far quicker than Nadir Muhammad ever was, because Ted Rogers was all about gambling his company on something. But Nadir Muhammad was far more conservative, but he still was intrigued by, you know, the idea of knocking off the big guy. And so you on the other side, you had Bell, and these guys were just such a massive company, you know. And I think they've never gotten the, the, uh, the idea of a monopoly, being a monopoly, out of their DNA. I've always found that just in – because they owned the globe for a time. Um, it was a fairly happy day when they did not. And uh, – <laughs> They, they they have a very bureaucratic sort of way of operating that can be frustrating uh, if you're if you're one of the ones caught under the thumb of it, and so that you know it's created these sort of uh, natural kind of enemies, I guess, for Rogers. So this was a chance to uh, really give a rival a good kick in the shin. So. In that sense, Keith, I think, found a willing audience among the board of directors, Edward Rogers being probably the most important one among them, and Nadir Muhammad, so that, you know, they even though, the, you know, relatively speaking, they're all big companies, Rogers was still sort of the upstart, and Keith was able to, with that sort of enthusiasm of his, say, why not, you know, let's, let's go, let's do this. And he, of course... Um I think one of the things that you, when you read this book, you realize is that Gary Bettman wants to deal with his counterpart at every network, so the boss, and he wasn't really getting that through Bell. He definitely wasn't getting that through CBC, and there's some hilarious stories. If anyone's ever read Jonathan Gatehouse's The Instigator, where uh, didn't they leave them in Harlem or something <laughs> to get their own cab? Like Some great meetings between the CBC and, and the NHL, but 
Keith Pelly with Rogers, he told Nadir Muhammad he had to go down and and meet Gary face to face, correct? And and yeah. that was part of the sell that ended up in the is a five point two billion dollar deal. Yeah, it was actually Scott Moore, and Scott Moore says that was my greatest contribution to this whole deal was insisting that Nadir Muhammad had to be an active participant in the talks. And that was simply because Scott Moore knew Gary Bettman from his time running CBC Sports. And he knew that Gary had a very, very well-developed sense of his own importance and the importance of his league. And just like when the NFL goes to negotiate a major deal, Gary figured the most important person in that company, I'm has to be sitting across the table from me. That's just our due. And so both the CBC and Bell made the same mistake in that neither uh, Hubert Lacroix, who was president of the CBC at the time, nor George Cope, the CEO of Bell, took part in the talks. And on top of that, uh, Bell had a pretty, or Cope rather, had a very contentious relationship with Bettman, which was sort of part of his other guys. He was, uh, you know, as a member of the board of directors of MLSE. So, I mean, it wasn't a deal breaker by itself, but it certainly played into, you know, the, an advantage that Rogers had. Just talking about developing characters, too, you, you kind of point out George Cope. He's a big, tall fella, I think 6'8", or something like that. And, and he, um, he not only kind of maybe indirectly angered uh, Gary Bettman, he also directly probably was, uh, you know, resulted in Brian Burke getting let go of the leaves, correct? Yeah. Yeah, George Cope, I mean, basically he is as anonymous as most corporate leaders are in Canada. That's publicly. I mean, that's the way these guys like it. But behind the scenes, yeah, he's he plays hard. He uh, and, and he does things his way. And, yeah, he's a very large, intimidating guy. He's 6'8". He played uh, varsity basketball, uh, I think at Windsor. I've forgotten the school, but I believe it's Windsor. And so he still has that sort of, you know, competitive uh, itch to him. And so he and Bettman had crossed swords a couple of times uh, over the lockout because the Maple Leafs certainly didn't want either lockout as a big revenue team. The last thing they wanted to do was forego revenue for, for a year. And then on top of that, uh, he just thought, no, you know, my negotiators will, will handle this. And, and his attitude was that guys like Gary Bettman work for us. And, and uh, no, that, it, it just didn't play out that way for, for Gary. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that turned out to be uh, another of the key mistakes. How is Gary Bettman different and I think people in the media will know, obviously, a lot more. Like than the Gary Bettman we see on TV. Gary Bettman seems to be on TV a little bit of a nervous guy. But uh, aside from that, in his role as commissioner and just dealing with all kinds of different uh, things that he has to de- deal with, uh, what is Gary Bettman like? Well, yeah, his public image is of this little sort of nerdy guy who who's not very good at small talk or yucking it up. I think he's probably a little better now than he was when he first came along. Although, if you get that image at the start, you know, it never quite leaves you. It, you never shake it. I, he's probably much more polished than that. But no one should ever, ever base their opinion of Gary on that because he didn't get that job by being a nervous, nerdy little guy. I mean, he got it because he's a very, very smart lawyer and uh, and very tough behind the scenes. I mean, yeah, he's a little short in stature, but uh, you don't mess with him. And, and um, I've disagreed on with Gary on any number of things over the years. I mean, I wouldn't say we have a warm and fuzzy relationship by any means, but I will say this. I have a ton of respect for him. Uh, and mostly we disagreed on things like the lockouts and all that, but I still have a ton of respect for him because I think he's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And he has an answer for everything. And if you work for him, you better have an answer every time he asks you a question or you won't work for him very long. But yeah, that like that, the reality of Gary is diametrically opposed to the public image. Uh, there are plenty of moving parts in, in hockey fight in Canada uh, in terms of characters, and we've just covered a whole host of them. One constant I found was John Collins of the NHL. Um, 
first of all, I just wanted you to explain to our listeners who he is. And, and after that, I have a follow-up. Well, John was um, essentially a marketing guy for most of his career. He started out in the NFL. He had, uh, I think, early on he was an executive with, uh, it's off the top of my head, the Cleveland Browns, I think. He be- he was president of the Browns for a while. Then he went to work for the league, the NFL, for quite some time and really moved up the ranks quickly. By the time he went to the NHL around 2005 or so, I'm going to say, or right around the time of that lockout, he was the head of marketing for the NFL. So he that was a, a really good get for the NHL when they got him. And he was essentially the number three guy at the NHL for all of his time there behind uh, Gary and, and Bill Daly, the, the deputy commissioner. But he was a really, really clever marketing guy. And, and the NHL their profile really increased under Collins. He he came up with a lot of stuff. The whole uh, outdoor game thing really blossomed under him. I, I'm not going to say he actually dreamed up the outdoor games. That's probably not how it worked. But he's the guy who said, we can really, you know, make hay with this. And he did a bunch, you know, other things like that that really raised the NHL's profile. And uh, I think when he decided to leave, that was a big loss for the league. Were you... Um I guess uh, concerned at all because he was such a constant voice that the, the league in this story would have a consistent voice, whereas the other companies, I mean, like you mentioned, Orange is gone. There's moving parts of the CBC. Some of the TSN guys remained anonymous, or at least one. Uh, and Keith Pelly is no longer at Sportsnet. Uh, and there's a lot. Of, there's that's like Goodfellas. I always say Sportsnet with the Hockey Night Canada almost seems like Goodfellas. There just seems to be a new guy getting knocked off all the time um, in the in the, in that structure. But yeah, was that was that a concern for you at all? Were you worried that with John being so available, it seemed like and quotable, that uh, the story could be swayed in any way? No, not really, because you're basically using the league's point of view, and it was consistent the whole time, Uh, mainly because Gary runs things in a way that things happen the way he deems them to happen, So, um, which, I don't know, could well explain why John John Collins isn't there anymore. (laughs) Everybody seems to sooner or later, uh, you know, have a parting of the ways with Gary. But but that whole negotiation went how Gary Bettman wanted it to go. John always made that clear in our conversations that uh, uh, that's the way things went in the NHL. So, yeah, in that sense, it was a there was a pretty consistent. Uh, voice there but that's because Gary was who he was and I mean uh, there were a couple of arguments John lost along the way but uh, yeah that's that's what happens when you work with Gary now segueing from you know the people working in the boardrooms to someone who was the most public facing guy George Strombolopoulos it seemed like a good synergy at the time uh, what what's how did that sort of go sideways and and what did their sort of reaction to him as hosts say about I guess Canadians tastes? Well, yeah, it it um, it is sort of a, a microcosm of the whole what happened with the whole show in that when they got a hold of it, Rogers decided we're going to make it a different hockey night in Canada. It's not going to be the same show that you grew up with. And they they didn't do this in a vacuum, by the way. I mean, they didn't just say, okay, you know, these guys, Ron and Don and all these guys have been around for long enough. I mean, off the top, you knew Ron McLean wasn't going to survive because of his relationship with Gary Bettman. And, and the NHL, the one thing they made clear, and, and Rogers didn't deny it, was that they were going to have a big say in the broadcast. So that was a given right off the top. And then, you know, Rogers had a a team that went around the country to large and small cities asking fans, you know, what do you want to see in the broadcast? What do you and and they took all kinds of marketing surveys and they got a pretty clear answer that we want to see something different. We're we're tired of the state old CBC. So they decided, okay, we're going to make all these changes. And naturally the host was going to be the biggest change i mean they could have gotten another old-fashioned guy like ron if they wanted to and in fact their first choice was james duthie he was not quite like 
George Strombolopoulos, but he was much different than Ron. He had a great sense of humor, and I happen to think he was the best hockey host in Canada. But James was very loyal to TSN and decided to stay where he was. So then it came George Strombolopoulos, which sort of represented the kind of changes they were making to the show, you know, modern, high-tech stuff. George started out in sports at sports radio, but soon got into entertainment, and that, you know, he was completely different. And then in the end, um, given, uh, you know, all of the changes, people just, turns out, didn't like them. And I think it had more to do probably with the ratings, the, the performance of the Canadian teams. You had a bunch of angry fans who were unhappy about their team. So looking at George and his earring and, and soul patch just gave him one more thing to complain about. And it just kind of gathered from there. And I think Rogers probably uh, went a little overboard in reacting. But, uh, you know, after two years, they just said, okay, everybody's angry. We're going back to – they essentially went back to the old version. And a lot of that was, as one of the veteran Hockey Night guys said to me, People will tell you they want change, but they really don't. And and when you consider the fact the average Canadian viewer is probably a fairly conservative person, yeah, it was just uh, you. Re- if if the Canadian teams hadn't been quite so bad, I think the changes wouldn't have been so abrupt. But they might they might have been spread out a little more. But uh, you wrap that all together, and uh, and George was doomed. Can you uh, can you actually expand on on what you said when the Canadian teams are doomed? Because that's a very important part of the story that all the all uh, the Canadian teams missed the playoffs. Was it the second year of the deal? The second year of the deal, and and that also to me, I you know you, you I think you hit the nail on the head um, because I think so much of who's on the air is preference, really, isn't it? I mean, um, there's no analytics other than ratings behind who's good and who's not. Would you agree or no? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And and the ratings were tumbling, but they were tumbling in large part because of the way the Canadian teams were playing. And so when people, you know, people would go on Twitter, they're mad because their team just lost. And oh, by the way, you know, that Strombo, who the hell does he think he is sort of thing. Um, and and the funny part of that is, uh, is that when Rogers landed the package, the Maple Leafs were considered to be on the rise, right? They, they, uh, in the last year of the CBC deal was the year they finally made the playoffs in the in the 48-game season, thanks to the lockout, and almost knocked off the Boston Bruins. Got them, you know, they were up, was a 4-1 in the third period, and then just slowly let it get away. But people that summer were optimistic. They thought, okay, the Leafs have finally, uh, you know, this is the Phil Kessel Leafs, have finally turned the corner and they're going to be good. And the Rogers guys were pretty excited because they thought, yeah, we got the Leafs on the rise right at the right time, the first year of our deal. And then, of course, as we all know, uh, Ron Wilson drove the 18-wheeler off the cliff. And it was two years of, of misery. But uh, that's sort of the, the attitude. What was unexpected along with the Leafs collapse was that all the other Canadian teams would pretty much be as bad. And, and that just turned into, you know, just a tsunami of bad news as far as the ratings go. And, and it, they just cratered. Was it a matter, I mean, with George again, a matter of, um, I always thought at least, and you can agree or disagree, that it wasn't that George was bad. It was just that Ron, it was so evident that he was not there because of how good he is. Is that a fair assessment in any way? I, I think, yeah, that's that's kind of it. I, I mean, the other difference is that, uh, that that conservative TV audience, they want the guy who's in charge, of, well, to their minds in charge because he's the, the face of the program, they want that person to be immersed in hockey and, and able to talk about anything that's going on in hockey, which is what Ron McClain could do. When you watched Ron, you, I mean, you might quibble with his individual style. I've never cared for Ron's puns, um, even though it does take a certain amount of <laughs> ingenuity to come up with them. Um, but but you couldn't argue with the fact that that he knew the sport inside out. He he spent every waking hour um, 
living and breathing hockey. And you knew that. When, and there was something comforting about that when you're watching. With George, on the other hand, it was like, well, he was a fairly enthusiastic fan, but he had a lot of other things going on in his life. If you followed his Twitter feed, most of his tweets were about the arts and entertainment music, not hockey. That that definitely ran uh, a, a distant second or third. And so that was something else that got up the noses of, you know, people. Like, George is a very skilled interviewer, for example, so he could interview people and do quite well. But when there was the bantering around the around the desk about things that were going on in the sport, you often got the impression that George was just a little out of his depth right there. Um, back to the, I guess, the book at hand and, and, and making, or writing the book, making the book, writing the book. Um, was there a lot in terms of the vetting process? How was how what did that involve? I know you'd already written a lot about it, so some of that had already taken care of itself. But because of so many, I guess, big names and important people, and just the content, were there lawyers involved? Like, how did how did that go down? And was your publisher uh, concerned? Actually, no. And, and yeah, I, I mean, normally something like that would uh, require a lawyer to read about it. If a lawyer read this manuscript uh, for the publisher, I wasn't told about it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, it helped that a lot of it had already been reported uh, previously by me in the Globe and Mail. But what really helped was that so many of these guys just spoke on the record, uh, like John Collins and, and Keith and Scott Moore. And so it's pretty hard to refute that when the principals are speaking on the record, and I'll always be grateful for that. But it's a funny thing uh, when it comes to stories like that. Often if someone is, knows he's talking to a newspaper reporter and what he's saying is going to appear in the newspaper that the next day or on their website in a couple hours, they're far more uh, guarded in what they tell you. Once a couple years go by and then you tell them you're writing a book, a book is a more abstract concept. It, it always seems to me then they're a little more forthcoming and they'll tell you a little more. Um, also, the fact that uh, they all seem to agree on, on most of the major details um, sort of helps in, in, uh, in that somebody's not going to pop up and say, that's not the way it happened and I'm going to sue you. Um, I'm, fair, I'm quite confident that everything happened mostly the way it it, it uh, you know there might be minor discrepancies in e different person's accounts but the major events and, and and all of that happened that way and and but mainly i'm just glad everybody spoke on the record for the most part for, for some random reason i'm reminded of when uh dick the late great dick shop uh had to meet with uh roy cohen about his george steinbrenner biography and Steinbrenner's like, take this out, take this out, take this out. And then Barbara Walters was at the next table in the restaurant. And she's like, take out all the nice things I said about George. <laughs> but uh, I wondered, uh, what's, what are the important parts of the book that identify just how this deal is sort of set up to handle the sea change in media consumption, where we've gone from, as you said, everyone gathers around the TV for three hours to watch the game to, Oh yeah, I, I saw the highlights. I saw these. I saw gifs. I saw all these ISO shots. I'm, I'm good. Like, how how was this deal set up to sort of ride that out? Well, one of the lawyers, uh, or one of the principals, uh, Gary or uh, Scott Moore or whoever, basically said this will in, this deal will include all platforms in use now, like. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you know, when you're disseminating highlights, and all any platform that's going to be invented in the future. That was sort of a key, a key, key thing. So no matter what happens, Rogers is in a position to make money as long as they can figure it out. And, and that's the big difference. This is the first, I believe, major sports league, certainly in North America, perhaps in the world, to turn all of its rights over to one uh, company at once. I don't think anyone else. The NFL always parcels off uh, its rights to different uh, different companies. Major League Baseball and the NBA do the same. Uh, I'm not I'm not certain about uh, the Premiership in soccer, but um, I think you know most of these leagues have like the digital rights you will often go to another company. Rogers has got them all, and that's the key right there. They've got them all, plus any that haven't been invented yet, and that allows them 
to uh, to have a shot at really making some serious money by the time this is over. What is the? I don't want to give the end of the book away because I really like that the quote it ended on. I thought that was great, and I just wanted you to maybe, in your own words, where do you think this deal is at right now? I mean, the title title does say uh, Al Rogers' big win went wrong, but I mean, is that the case? Not yet. No, I, I mean it was certainly by the end of year three uh, or year two. I, I keep getting them mixed up. Um, I don't think it's if if you went and got the true books right now. I don't think it would prove to be a, a huge win for them just yet. But I uh, because I mean you got a guy Lawrence when he was took over as CEO from uh, from Nadir Muhammad before he got turfed himself. He insisted Rogers turned to profit in the first two years of the. Uh, of the deal now the way the deal was set up i suppose that was technically right because um gary being no dummy uh structured the deal so the lowest payments are in the early years and then they rise throughout the 12 years that way he can always go to the governors and say our television revenues are up x percent this year it also makes a pretty pretty uh, big challenge for rogers every year because the sheer size of the deal means their payments are rising 20 million plus every year now you can bet advertising uh, advertisers are not raising their uh, budgets that what they can spend by the same kind of amount every year so that's a challenge and uh, you know it uh, I think in the end they they the best I can say is they're not going to get burned by this I don't think in the end um, I think they will come out of it okay uh, I don't want to make a definitive guess because there's just so many variables involved right now you know like where are digital rights going and are there big is there big money to be made on ads on YouTube which I'm told that's where the Millennials get their uh, their replay so I'll just say this, that I don't think Rogers is going to come out of this in a smoke and ruin. <laughs> you know, they'll be all right. Um, in, in my experience, and I, I think maybe in this book it, it does indicate that, I, I, does TSN look back, and I guess TSN and by extension Bell, look back at this deal now in with kind of, a, I guess, a, a, their 2020 hindsight, for example? I feel like they almost feel like they got away with one, uh, but they would have loved to have this deal, would they not have? Yeah, there's no shortage of TSN guys who will say to you, boy, we're glad we didn't get that deal, because they did offer the same, basically the same money, uh, which was $5.2 billion. Ro Rogers got it uh because the NHL liked their ideas better, how they were going to do it. But they did say to Rogers, you know, give us a dollar more, which was actually <laughs> about 10 or 20 million more. And, and it's yours. But then, you know, of course, what else is a TSN guy going to say? I mean, I, I've heard lots of them say to me, oh, yeah, look at, like, especially after the first two years, they said, see, we're lucky we didn't get that. However, they still got a lot of challenges ahead of them because. Um, not that they're losing money by any means. They're still financially really healthy because they've got a lot of, uh, they went to what they called a champion strategy. They got the Masters. They got the U.S. Open. They've got all the big events in other sports that people watch. So they're, they're always going to be okay. And, but the thing they're going to fight, though, is the rising cost of rights. Um, the next time, you know, the NFL comes up, these big companies like Amazon and Google, they're going to—they're spending more and more money buying up streaming rights for these leagues where they never did before. So TSN's going to have to fight that. Whereas Rogers, their two main properties are the Blue Jays, which they own outright, and the NHL. They know how much that's going to cost them for uh, the rest of this deal. So for another seven years. And they know exactly what they're going to be paying. So that's a huge advantage to them. So, you know, um, TSN can say they dodged a bullet, but there's lots more coming in this kind of business. What's the benefit, I'm going to backtrack a bit, in, in, a, in a league bundling and packaging uh, as opposed to doing, packaging their rights as opposed to what the NHL didn't give it all to one uh, entity? 
Well, the theory there was, and, and by the way, that going into this, that's exactly what the NHL planned. That was plan A, was we are going to get the maximum number of packages to the maximum number of networks, because the idea is you get each network to pay the most they can, and then each network, uh, so your total take is, is well, supposedly quite high, but also you got several networks publicizing you, not just one. And then, you know, versus plan B, what they call the gatekeeper model, where you hand everything over to one. And that, to their mind, only works if there's a network willing to hand over an astounding amount of money, which in the end is exactly what happened. And so that was sort of the, the differing philosophies there. This, uh, the CBC, the Hockey Night, sorry, the Hockey Night deal, obviously, as you said, is is pretty much it's it's a unique situation in all of sports. How the rights left the CBC, you'd had it for so long. Is there anything? And I look back and I looked at Monday Night Football, perhaps in in '05, going to ESPN, I believe, from ABC. How does does that even come close to comparing? How much interest there has been from from a country in rights going from one rights holder to another, as in the case with CBC and, and Rogers in this case? Well, on our, our scale here in Canada, no. That, I mean, that was uh, the biggest shift ever, I think, as far as a broadcast property goes. I can't think of anything comparable. There have been a few with the NFL, uh, you know, like CBS and NBC and ABC have, have swapped around the various, uh, I guess Fox maybe, that that might be a comparable. Was it in the earlier mid-90s where Fox suddenly appeared on the NFL scene and swiped, uh, I think it was uh, the CBS package, I believe and that was a that was a fairly big deal but I, I think this on a on a relative basis was was much bigger than that yeah that, when when we were talking about that I was reminded I think there was a great SNL sketch after that when Fox got the NFC C rights still has them today and there was like oh it was like Luke Perry gonna be like hosting like halftime and and in like full Dylan McKay meltdown uh, mode uh, throwing that out there for the, the people who you know always said they didn't watch 902 and 0 but did uh what david what do you sort of see like you mentioned like you know the bullets that the tsn's gonna have flying flying at them but what do you think is going to be like a huge business sports business story in canada in the years to come that maybe people don't quite have on their radar yet I would guess um, when uh, digital takes over as, like right now, uh, telev conventional television is still the number one medium people watch these games on. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of talk about the millennials and their viewing habits, but they're still you know distinctly in the minority. But in the coming, those those are changing steadily. I mean, one of the guys I quoted in the book, a uh, market researcher, he expects within a year or two that at least a third of Canadian homes will not have cable or satellite or any kind of communications you know or package like that to watch uh, television on they're going to be watching it through an internet connection and i think when that gets to be the majority and then you're you know you, you can't be sure what platform is taking over that's when yeah the next big revolution or the big story will come uh, but how far away that is i couldn't hazard a guess this is probably gonna be a hard question for you to answer um but i mean I would say that you're you you are uniquely positioned to write this story in not only from the fact that you covered the story uh, in the paper as it unfolded, but also there's so many writers that are either with TSN or with Sportsnet. You know, you got let's say I'm just going to throw out a couple of names, but there's many more. Uh, Steve Simmons, for example, was on the reporters and TSN. Uh, Chris Johnson, for example, is uh, with Sportsnet. Did you feel that that you had a unique position in that you're not? kind of signed on to one of those networks? Yeah, I, I was always aware of that. Uh, maybe I was always aware. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not trying to say that makes me some sort of lone wolf of great integrity or anything, because I'll tell you what, I was equally aware of the fact neither one of those entities were giving me a really lucrative sideline like so many of my colleagues. But yeah, it would have been a real handicap for you know a writer who was aligned with. Because let's face it, nowadays those two companies, Rogers and Bell, they basically control 
the vast majority of the sports media, and uh, it's uh, it's just the way things are going now. And then there's, there's so there's no shortage of accusations going around. If you're a Rogers guy, well, you're going easy on the Blue Jays. If you're a Bell guy, well, you're going easy on the CFL. That sort of thing. And so yeah, that that certainly put me in a position to do it. Mind you, I I did tell the the our publisher's PR person when we started out. Uh, to talk about a, a you know marketing this book and and a PR campaign like approaching folks like you or or uh, or the networks about getting interviews, I said to her, "You do realize your client, i.e., me, has written the only book that the three biggest player media players in the country would want rather bury than promote." So yeah, we've been fighting that. I, I my inbox is not overflowing with invitations from. Uh, either Bell or Rogers, to go on their shows. That's actually kind of too bad, in a sense, really. You know, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, like, uh, humor aside, I mean, this is a this is a, a really good story that needs to be told. And, and maybe the podcast world will be where it is told. Um, um, so I'm just going to go back in time. I used to work at the NHL Network Canada before it uh, was shuttered. And um, I remember we were called in to see a TSN executive and... We chatted, and I felt like that was right before the deal went down, maybe a year before, and they were trying to get a feeler on what was going on because uh, they didn't normally talk to us too much. And I remember telling that executive, um, hey, you know, I really feel this deal is, is worthy of a book, uh, and it's going to be great and all this stuff. This is well before the, you know, the CFL, the, the Grey Cup, and the deal being made and all that stuff. Um, and I said, have you ever heard of The Late Shift? And that is a book about um, how Johnny Carson's spot was competed for by Leno and Letterman. And, well, I, I guess you've kind of made the hockey equivalent of that. Um, and have you ever read that book? You are the second interviewer in about three days to bring up that book. <laughs> and no, I've read, I read the excerpts that were in, uh, uh, were they in Vanity Fair? And they, they were fascinated, but for whatever reason, I never went out and got the book. And I'm very glad you didn't because in, and I always like to shout, shout out Nardwar because really this is where I got this from. We like to give our guests a gift, and I thought I have to give Dave Schultz the late shift, and I'm glad you haven't read it. Well, you know what? I really, really thank you because this is the perfect gift because I was planning to buy this book because the podcast I was on, it was on Friday. It hasn't aired yet. And the guy is a buddy of mine from the comedy world. He was talking about this book, about how it was a, such the same story. And I was sitting here thinking, I better go get that book because I do. I did remember the excerpts I read and they were they were fascinating. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. It uh, it 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 was a, just a great, great broadcast story. Actually, there's a there's a question because I think in, I've actually seen the movie, and the guys who play uh, Leno and Letterman don't look enough. They they look sort of like half like each of them. So it's just kind of like they should have just completely fictionalized them. But uh, how uh, how much how I mean, David Letterman had to basically turn down the Tonight Show to go to CBS. How similar was was uh, James Duthie's uh, dilemma to that in terms of he stayed at TSN, but he came, you know, out of it smelling like roses, I think. Yes, he did. And, and you know what? He, he did it without ever saying that he seriously considered uh, the offer because it ha it seems to me it happened fairly quickly. And the other thing was there was a great deal of loyalty there by all of the key hockey guys uh, because they all got re-upped almost at once. And, and in fact, just to bolster the troops, TSN announced this to their own staff all at the same time because Bob McKenzie, Darren Dreger, and I think Pierre Lebrun also signed within you know week a few weeks of duffy so they were able to just call everybody together up at the headquarters and say these guys have elected to stay with us and that was a, a real morale booster at the time for uh, for the tsn guys and their attitude was okay we're gonna we're still gonna be the go-to network for panel shows and and we still got some regional games so uh yeah that was uh certainly at that point was a pretty significant deal for tsn 
<laughs> now we did want to ask you about one of your uh, your sideline with, with comedy. How did this come about? I mean, granted, I think every because we're you know I I was a sports writer at a low level. You're always observing things. You're always noticing odd little off things. Uh, how how did the comedy thing come about? Well, it actually had nothing to do with sports. I always, as it turned out, um, had an interest in comedy. I just didn't realize I could turn it into being a comic myself. It was something that never occurred to me. Um, a friend of mine, Garrett Joyce, who's a fairly well-known sports writer and author, he works over at Sportsnet, he sent me an invitation to a show uh, a couple of years ago, and it was his graduate show from a stand-up comedy course at Second City. And I read this email and said, do you mean you can actually take lessons in this? Because I've been going to comic clubs for 35 years. Any, I was on the road. Anytime I was on the road, I was always dragging guys to comedy clubs. In fact, the first time I went to a comedy club was in 1980 with Eric Dehachek took me. It was the comedy store in L.A., and the headliner turned out to be a guy named Jay Leno. And so, yeah, it went from that. So... Before I even replied to Gare's invitation, I went on the Second City website and signed up for the next course. They run them continuously. And it's just, it's been a lot of fun. doesn't pay any money, you know. I, the, typical me. I get, yeah, I get the only sideline that pays as well as journalism. And so, but yeah, and uh, basically it's a seven-week course. They teach you how to write a, a, a short set, and the graduation is you perform a show and you're set up to succeed because you invite all your friends and relatives to uh, uh, come to this comedy club. And so you've, you're guaranteed a friendly audience. It's later when you have to go out and work on it at open mics when the only audience is the seven other comics on the bill who just want you to shut up so they can get up there. That's when you start learning about what it's like to bomb. But it's uh, it's pretty hard work, but it's a lot of fun. I wish I had more time to uh, to invest in it. Well, I know me and Nate. Uh, the next time uh, we have, we're looking for something to do. We're gonna go check out check out Dave Schultz on the mic. But uh, for anyone else out there, uh, check out Hockey Fight in Canada. It was released on September 29th. Uh, Dave, is there anything else you want to uh, say before uh, we sign off? Yes, you, you just reminded me. October 10th, Absolute Comedy at Young and Eglinton. I'll be there for the first time in probably a year and a half, and that's always a good show. For those that listen to this episode after that date, is there a way they can find out uh, where you might be performed? Should I go to your Twitter, perhaps? Twitter, yeah. Just tell us your Twitter account address. I am at D Schultz, D S H O A L T S. And yeah, I'm constantly pestering people about where I'm going to be performing on, uh, on that particular social media. Dave, uh, thank you very much. Uh, on behalf of Nate and myself, uh, for coming in. Um, it was a really enjoyable book and thank you for sharing so much time with us. And thank you very much for the late shift. I appreciate it. And you're welcome for me being here. It was my pleasure. Yeah.